Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What is the fascination with them? Why do we why are we so intrigued by them? Well, it's sort of magical that something that size can just float. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's the size of a giant ocean liner and it just floats in the air. Welcome once again to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for your company. Thanks for joining me once again into our little odyssey, into the origins of our stuff. This episode is all about zeppelins. Zeppelins. It's such an odd word for such an extraordinary sight. Those long cigar-shaped things the size of ocean liners floating in the sky. Gosh, did we dream them? Did they happen? They seem almost too weird to have been real. But there was a time when they looked like the future. But like many possible futures, and there have been many possible futures, it never really materialised. But it's fun to imagine what the world might have looked like. A world where zeppelins perhaps docked on the top of the Empire State Building, people dining in style as they floated serenely over the mountains. Perhaps even goods being shipped around the world in the air rather than across the sea. And who knows, maybe in an alternative universe, a parallel universe... The Hindenburg disaster, that famous disaster that struck the death knell of the Zeppelin, never happened. And that future is being played out. Yes, the Hindenburg, the most famous Zeppelin of them all, was unfortunately famous for all the wrong reasons. Because on the 6th of May, 1937, the Hindenburg was coming into land at Lakehurst, in New Jersey on the east coast of America after completing another successful transatlantic crossing. And a crowd had gathered on the ground below, whooping and cheering as as it came in. But then flames burst out of its side. And within 35 seconds, this leviathan of the sky 
was nothing more than a smoking carcass on the ground. It's crashing terrible. Oh my, get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning fast and all the folks between us. This is terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's like 20, oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. And it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now and the flame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the And with that, this vision, this rather elegant vision of the future was snuffed out forever. Today, I'm going to be talking to Dan Grossman, who runs the very excellent website airships.net, who has been researching and writing about airships and zeppelins for more than 30 years. His website is extraordinary. It's so deep. It's so full of information about Zeppelins. That really is the place to go. And I'm delighted to welcome him on the show today. Welcome to the show. It's, lo- it's lovely to have you on. We're going to talk about Zeppelins. Question. I think I don't understand the difference between airship, blimp, Zeppelin, dirigible. Is that how you pronounce it? Dirigible? Sure, that works. So <laughs> any powered, steerable, lighter than air vessel is an airship and is also a dirigible. Dirigible comes from the French dirigeable, which means steerable. Different to something like a balloon. Yes. I mean, I always think of like the, the Mongolfia brothers who were, who were making hot air balloons in the 1700s. So those are, those are neither powered nor are they steerable. So they're just balloons. Uh, okay. And Zeppelin, where does the word Zeppelin come from? It's such a famous word. We all know Zeppelin and we listen to Led Zeppelin and the word Zeppelin. <laughs> but where does, it, where does it come from? Well, the real Zeppelin was was here long before the Led Zeppelin. So the word Zeppelin comes from Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, who was a German aristocrat from southern Germany. And Zeppelin is a trade name for an aircraft from a specific company, just the way a Boeing is an airplane made by Boeing, an Airbus is an airplane made by Airbus. Kleenex is a particular brand. So Zeppelin is a brand name named after a person. And in this case, Ferdinand Graf von Zeppelin. Ferdinand Graf von, see, that's a name. Do you know what I mean? If, if I was a Victorian inventor, that is, it's just, that's a proper it's name, isn't classic. it? classic. What else are you going to do other than invent, invent Zeppelins? <laughs> well, listen, set the scene for us. Where are we in time? So the first, so, okay, we've got things like hot air balloons and people have been experimenting with hot air balloons for a long time. What happened in the world for someone, for this chap to suddenly go, I know, I've got a really good idea. We're going to build this great long cigar-shaped enormous thing that is going to revolutionise the world. Well, let, let's, let's go back. People have wanted to fly since sort of probably the beginning of humankind. And the only way to do that was through a lighter than air craft, first a balloon, hot air balloon, and then a gas balloon. And it was the only way to get up in the air. So someone, many people had the idea of taking a balloon and making it able to be powered and steered 
And there were various attempts through the late 19th century to do that. None of them were terribly successful. Partly it was an issue of engine technology. So it's kind of funny that uh, airships are often associated with the steampunk aesthetic. Yeah. And the steampunkers love airships for some reason, which is bizarre because uh, airships and steam are completely contradictory. uh, And steampunk is a Victorian concept. Airships are really part of what would be called diesel punk because the thing that made the airship possible was the internal combustion engine. The steam engine is just not compatible primarily because of weight reasons with a lighter than air vehicle, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I guess, you know, the invention of the Zeppelin, which is 1896, is that right? Or around about? The first Zeppelin flew in 1900. 1900. So it's not far off the Wright Brothers' first flight. Okay, the Wright Brothers, 1903. It's only it's only a couple of years. And I guess it was the, you know, engine technology that got them off the ground as well. Right. No, exactly. It, it was the internal combustion engine that enabled aviation to happen, both heavier than air, such as the Wright Brothers, and lighter than air, such as Count von Zeppelin. Tell us a little bit about Count von Zeppelin then. Who was he and like where did he come from and how did he get this this moment of inspiration. He was a South German aristocrat who was a military officer by profession. He famously went to the United States during the Civil War as an observer to learn modern warfare techniques. While he was in America, he traveled to the Midwest and observed a balloon. And he just thought it was magical. This thing could just rise into the air. Just thought it was magical. So he, he he saw this balloon and was, and was inspired by this balloon. I mean, was he, had he made things before? Was he, you know, you say he's an aristocrat, but was he also a, a, a sort of a, a builder of things? I mean, how did he go from being inspired to making balloons to building something quite complex like a flying machine? Well, it's funny you say that because actually it's not that complex, which is really one of the interesting things about airships. It's one of the reasons they existed is because They're basically very simple concepts. So simple as to be almost a silly idea in many ways. Yeah. Many of the early airship people were not engineers or technicians because you sort of didn't need to be, right? It was... It's sort of yeah. intuitive. You just make something that floats, and it floats. Well, let's let's just talk about let's talk about the the the, the technical aspect. So, when did think because I I'm right in thinking zeppelins or certainly they used to use hydrogen because hydrogen's lighter than air. Like, where did the sort of discovery of I know let's use hydrogen rather than hot air had that been used in balloons already? Yes, and it had been used in gas balloons. And people chemists had known and people had known that hydrogen was lighter than air for a long time. I mean, so people had been playing around with it. But the idea of using it for this large steerable aircraft, Zeppelin's original idea was what he sort of referred to as like an air train. It was actually a series of inflated cylinders that were connected to each other in the same way that railway cars were hitched to each other and and pulled. But that wasn't really practical and he abandoned that. So in the late 19th century, from his first observation of the balloon in in the United States until the 1890s. He had been uh, sketching in his diaries and notebooks. He had been thinking about, dreaming about creating a steerable airship that had the benefits of a balloon, but had power and could be steered. And then when the internal combustion engine became practical, 
he really sort of put his you know nose to the grindstone and worked on a design. And then by the late 1890s, he, he actually decided, well, let's let's try to build one of these. I guess I'm just wondering where, you know, did he have um, a sort of background in things like aerodynamics and, and fluid mechanics and all that, the stuff that we one might assume a shipbuilder, an engineer might have? That's no, he, his, his background was as a, as a military officer. Like he knew how to shoot things and blow things up. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, let's go to his first Zeppelin, the first Zeppelin 1.0. Right. He's got this idea. He's got, presumably, you know, he's got some hydrogen. Tell us the, the, the origins of his first attempt. So he had his basic concept of the basic shape and, and the basic control mechanisms. There would be some kind of fins, sort of like a, a fish or a bird has fins. And he uh, hired an engineer to help him build one of these. It wasn't a very good engineer. The engineer wasn't actually terribly confident in his own ability and refused to fly in the thing himself <laughs> and, and made one very large engineering mistake, which is that he used uh, tubes and tubes, cylindrical tubes, uh, don't really have a lot of rigidity. They bend really easily. I mean, basically, it's a series of like drinking straws, right? But that's how the first one was built. And it flew briefly uh, in 1900. And this is hydrogen powered or hydrogen to give it lift. Yeah, hydrogen gave it lift, exactly. And of course, because of the lack of rigidity of these tubular girders that were used, it hogged and it sagged. In other words, it didn't really keep its shape. So he realized this wasn't a good idea. And he kind of got disenchanted with his engineer, both because the guy wouldn't fly in his own aircraft <laughs> and because obviously he didn't design a very good aircraft. So he found another engineer who stuck with him throughout the rest of the enterprise. And they began using uh, triangular shapes. A triangle is just a much more rigid, has much better structural integrity than a tube. And so from his second one onward, he had something that worked pretty well for the time. Give us a sense of the scale of it. Because the one thing we, you know, when we look at Zeppelins, we're just, we look at them and we can't quite believe how enormous they are. Why are they so big? Like, what's the reason why they're so enormous? Well, they need to be big because hydrogen and later helium are lighter than air. And so they do lift things. But they're not so much lighter than air that they can lift a lot. Right. So it's the physics that you need to for this for the size. Basically, you need a lot of cubic meters of hydrogen or helium to lift relatively light weights. If you want to lift a lot of stuff, you need a lot of hydrogen. <laughs> this is the thing that's always worried me about zeppelins. When you look at how enormous they are uh, uh, as opposed to their payload, it always seems ridiculous. Like an aeroplane is a tube filled with people, but a Zeppelin <laughs> is a massive tube with like a tiny little cargo thing at the bottom. No, that, that's right. And actually, it's almost shocking to compare the, the size of this thing, right, to what it what that whole thing existed to carry. Well, listen, when, when the maiden flight of the first Zeppelin happened, what on earth did people think? I mean, people had never seen anything like this. Did they were they freaked out? Did, were they were, were they like screaming, thinking, "Oh my God, what what the hell is this?" Well, there weren't all that many people watching. It, certainly more than watched the Wright brothers, but n not a tremendous, tremendous crowd. It took place in a reasonably remote place. It was on the Bodensee, or in English, we usually call it Lake Constance in southern Germany. 
So it wasn't a huge mass event, but people were, were pretty amazed. I mean, this was really the, the first, I mean, it was three years before the Wright brothers. So it was kind of the first successful powered human flight. So it was a pretty cool thing. And can I just ask, within that rigid, within that rigid structure, would you, you'd have kind of cells or balloons, like bags of gas in there? It wouldn't be, the actual main bit of the Zeppelin wouldn't be filled with gas, as it were. There, there are kind of bags of gas inside. So you have a rigid framework, which creates a series of compartments, and each compartment has a gas cell. Originally, the gas cells were made out of the intestines of cows which have the advantage of being fairly gas impermeable, the disadvantage of smelling awful. And there were a couple of reasons for using multiple cells. One of them was the practical reason that if one deflated, at least the whole ship wouldn't crash. What was the reaction? Was there a kind of political reaction to this? Did military people take note? Did the sort of politicians or entrepreneurs go, hang on, that's a brilliant idea. I know how we could sell this. We could start transporting passengers or dropping bombs or... It's good that you mentioned the military because that was Count Zeppelin's whole idea, right? He was a military officer and the only socially acceptable and patriotic endeavor that an aristocrat could engage in was for the state, for the government, for the military. So he envisioned the Zeppelin from the very beginning as a military weapon. He never thought or wanted it to be a commercial or a passenger carrying Thing, right? It was very déclassé for an aristocrat to be in commerce. Like the idea of starting a company to carry passengers who were going to pay for tickets, that's just not something an aristocrat would do back at that time. But, but building a weapon, now that's a great thing for an aristocrat to do. <laughs> Unfortunately, the military was not terribly excited. They just didn't think it was very practical. They, they were concerned that it couldn't fly for very far, which the first ones couldn't, that it couldn't stay in the air for very long. It was big, it was expensive, it was unwieldy, it took a lot of men. So the military gave him a test and they said, see if you can get one that will stay in the air for 24 hours. And they really weren't interested in anything that couldn't do that. So by 1908, uh, he was able to build a ship that could and did stay in the air for 24 hours. Unfortunately, it uh, was caught up in a storm on the ground and hit a fence and burned to cinders. So it wasn't really very practical. And it also emphasized to the military how vulnerable these things were. You know, I mean, one cigarette and the whole thing's gone. Well, we're going to come on to that in a minute, for, for, for obvious reasons. So if the military weren't that interested in it, how did, when, did we, when did it suddenly turn into this rather form of sort of luxury transport? Well, so let me go back a step to 1908, where his first really successful Zeppelin uh, burned and was destroyed. And a lot of people assumed, he probably himself assumed, that this was the end, right? It's, he's not going to get a second chance. This was a fiasco, a disaster. Well, what happened is what in aviation history is known as the miracle of Eschterdingen. Eschterdingen is the name of the little town in Germany where this thing burned. And what happened was when the news got around Germany about this horrible failure, instead of laughing at him, people began mailing him coins. They had so much admiration for this crazy count trying this crazy thing, and they felt so badly that it had wound up in disaster that they that people spontaneously, this was not an organized thing. He didn't ask for this, right? People spontaneously began sending him money so he could try again. And that really both enabled him 
to try again, but also sent the message to a lot of people, including the government, that, hey, the, the German people really like this thing. So maybe we should pay more attention to it. And that was kind of the beginning. You know, that was the turning point. If it hadn't been for that, the Zeppelin Enterprise probably would have would have died in 19. How strange. So public support. It was really public support, just on a whim. Yeah, it was a very spontaneous public support. Children would mail him envelopes with thanks. You know, it was just very grassroots. I want to know how it became a sort of this from this idea of it being a, a machine of war, a military machine, to it becoming a passenger machine. And, and what was the first passenger Zeppelin? So that was a concept that Count von Zeppelin himself struggled against. Remember, he didn't want to be in commerce. That was uh, beneath an aristocrat. But despite the, some of his technological successes and despite the support of the German people, he still had a lot. The, the, the military really still didn't want to buy this thing. They, they just were not interested. And so there was a, an, an executive, a manager with Zeppelin, a guy named Kohlsmann, who realized that, well, if the military won't buy it, we've got to do something. If we want to sell them, we've got to find someone to, someone to buy them. So he came up with the idea of starting an airline. And so in the, in the years before World War I, the Zeppelin company built and sold a number of airships to this airline and used them to carry paying passengers and carried a tremendous number of paying passengers between about 1910 and 1914. So where would they go? I mean, obviously this is the first, really the first airline ever. So where would, where would one fly to? And, and paint a picture for us of what a flight in one of these early Zeppelins would be like. The first airships didn't really go anywhere. They took off and landed at the same airfield and mainly gave people an opportunity to take a sightseeing flight. Being up in the air was itself quite a remarkable novelty. And they tried to make these as luxurious as possible. So the, the cabins were small, but they were very elegant, sort of like a railway train, great meal service. They served champagne and caviar and elegant foods. The world's first flight attendant, a guy named Heinrich Kubis, actually was on a Zeppelin in 1912. And he was on the Zeppelin to serve food and take care of the wealthy passengers who were on these flights. I'm just, how did the public take to it? I, I, can, I can sort of imagine if nobody had really been in a balloon or an airship before and that here they are suddenly invented and you're very high off the ground. Were people not terrified of things going wrong and, you know, help? What happens if, if there's a disaster? Uh, and there were a few disasters. People were very enthusiastic, though. Tens of thousands of people rode in these things. Uh, there was a tremendous number of people who flew in Zeppelin airships in the years before World War One. So there was tremendous enthusiasm. Now, were they dangerous? Absolutely. And a few of them crashed. But you have to understand that people had a completely different tolerance for risk in those years. Almost everything was dangerous back then. They, you know, they didn't have any safety. They didn't have health and safety. I'm, I'm, the, no. I'm thinking the very first uh, Heinrich Kubris, is that his name? Heinrich Kubis. The very first attendant. He probably didn't do a flight, flight safety demonstration. Uh, I'm certainly, certainly not. Well, there was something really to demonstrate, you know. We'll be back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway 
visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists, and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, let's talk about the second most famous Zeppelin, which is the Graf Zeppelin, which is the one, 1929, the Zeppelin that flew around the world. What was the, the origins of that? And who decided, I know, we're going we're gonna to fly, fly around the world? So let's go back a step. After World War I, the Zeppelins were a terrifying weapon used by the Germans in World War I. Just terrifying to the Allies. They were used in bombing civilians. And when Germany was defeated and the Allies imposed the Treaty of Versailles, one of the conditions of the Treaty of Versailles was that Germany could never operate airships again. The people at the Zeppelin company, Luftschiffbau Zeppelin, were obviously not happy about having their entire reason for existence being taken away. So they scratched their heads and they were struggled, well, how do we stay in business? And they started doing things like making aluminum pots and pans just to keep the factory open. But what they really wanted to make was airships. So they came up with the idea of building an airship for the Americans as part of war reparations. Germany was required to pay a lot of money to the allies who had defeated them. So the Germans built this LZ-126 and it was a great, successful, beautiful airship, flew very well, flew for very many years. So then they decided they wanted to build one of their own. So how do they do this? And there was no money. I mean, Germany was still suffering from the aftermath of being horribly defeated in World War I. So a guy named Hugo Eckner, who was a pioneering early person in the Zeppelin endeavor, 
uh, and some of the other people from the Zeppelin Company went around Germany in the 1920s, uh, giving speeches and raising money. It was fundraising. It was kind of like the GoFundMe of the of the time. And they tried to raise the money and they tried to get permission from the Allies to build an airship. And they finally were able to do that. They raised the money and they were able to build this airship. They didn't have the money to build a new hangar. They only had enough money to build the ship itself. And so the dimensions of the ship were dictated by the size of the hangar they had. It couldn't be bigger than the hangar they had. So it was not ideal. It was too small. It really was too small. But they built the ship. It crossed the Atlantic. It was a great success. And then in 1929, they said, well, how are we going to, what, what are we going to do to really wow people? And a flight around the world certainly will wow people. How long did that take? Uh, around the world trip in a plane doesn't take that long, 48 hours. I'm thinking it must be a heck of a lot longer on a, Ze- on a Zeppelin. Oh, well, no. I mean, it, it took weeks, of course. And although at the time, around the trip world in a plane also took weeks. I'm wondering, as this, as this Zeppelin is going around the world over places that, that people had never seen Zeppelins before, what on earth they must have thought, this gigantic, great big cigar tube? They were amazed, and it became one of the biggest media events of 1929. Huge crowds turned out to see this flight. It was on the front pages of newspapers across the globe. It was big, 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 big news. And did people see this as the future? Did, did people go, okay, this, this, yes, we have aeroplanes, but this is the future. This is... Well, and, and it, it seemed to be, they had every reason to think that it was. So if you think about what airplanes they had at the time, right? So 1927, May of 1927, Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis. Uh, that was a small plane, you know, barely big enough to lift much more than him and a thermos of hot cocoa and... I'm not even sure if he took a sandwich because it may have been too heavy. <laughs> no, seriously, he, he cut off portions of the map that he wasn't going to need to save weight. To save weight? Wow. So it was made out of, you know, wood and fabric, and it was just a rickety little thing. Airplanes were rickety little things that couldn't fly very far and couldn't carry So much. this was a solution. The Zeppelin was a solution for long distance mass transit maybe not mass transit but but certainly ferrying people from a to b am i right in thinking the empire state building had a zeppelin mooring on top of it or a way for zeppelins to or did i dream that you are you are right in thinking that people think that okay okay so it's one of those kind of like oh yes that spiky bit on top of the empire State. that's for zeppelins it was advertised, uh, promoted for Zeppelins, but it never really was. And it was sort of a marketing, uh, it was kind of a marketing gimmick. Uh, no Zeppelin ever could have or ever did more to it. I think that there is a great picture, I think, of the Graf Zeppelin and the Empire State Building, but one is not tethered to the other, I don't think. Yeah, there are some pictures of airships flying near it. There are some pictures of airships tethered to it, but it's an early version of Photoshop. Uh, it didn't actually okay. ever happen. <laughs> oh, that's quite... So, okay, so here we, so we've got this great new promising future. It's the 1920s. Airships are all the rage. The most famous airship, of course, is the Hindenburg. Tell us about the Hindenburg. What was it? Where did it come from? Why was it? And what happened? The Hindenburg resulted from the stunning success of the LZ-127 Graf Zeppelin. After Graf Zeppelin flew around the world in 1929, it actually maintained a regular scheduled transatlantic passenger air service, the first in the world in the early 19, very early 1930s. But it was uh, small. It was, it was too small to fly very far. It was too small to carry very many people. It was too small to be very comfortable. 
basically the passenger area of Graf Zeppelin had a handful of tiny cabins the size of a railway sleeping compartment and one room, right? Just one little room. But it proved that you could successfully carry people and mail over long intercontinental distances. So everyone said, well, if a little is good, more is better, which is kind of my philosophy about paint, glue, medicine, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the idea was to build something that was just a lot bigger, that could carry a lot more, could fly a lot farther, uh, could fly somewhat faster, at just a bigger, better version. It reminds me of the Titanic. It's like, let's build the biggest, safest, most amazing vehicle ever. Sure, but with a more practical reason. You didn't need to build the biggest ship in the world to make a profit carrying passengers. There were medium-sized ocean liners that made a nice profit carrying people. With airships, size and economics go hand in hand. Because remember, helium and hydrogen doesn't lift very much. So if you want to lift a lot, you got to have a really, really big airship. And so Hindenburg was designed to be large enough to lift enough people and stuff to make a profit. It was also designed with the concept that it might maybe operate with helium because everyone knew how dangerous hydrogen was. It was no secret. I mean, lots and lots of hydrogen airships burned and crashed. Everyone knew that operating a passenger airship with hydrogen was just stupid. Like everyone knew that. And so the idea was, let's build an airship that is big enough to carry people and mail and cross oceans, but is also big enough that it can use helium. And, and that was the original idea of Hindenburg. Well, tell us, tell us about the Hindenburg then. So it got built. They didn't use helium. Why didn't they use helium? Why did they go back to hydrogen? There were a number of reasons. Uh, the Germans didn't have helium. Only the Americans had helium. And the Germans were, well, for one thing, they didn't want to ask for it. Remember, this was National Socialist Germany, right? And the National Socialists were arrogant, if nothing else. And it was not really consistent with the Nazis' self-image to tell the world, we can't do something by ourselves. Like, we can't do this without going hat in hand to the Americans and getting on our knees and saying, please give us helium. That just wasn't a very Nazi way to think. So they were really, really determined to do this on their own without needing to ask anybody for help. The other thing is helium was expensive and the Nazis were trying to save all of their hard currency to build weapons. They didn't want to say they needed it. They didn't want to pay for it. But overlying that all was that they really thought they could handle hydrogen. The, the Germans had handled hydrogen for 30 plus years. And so they were very arrogant and confident about their ability to to, to keep this tiger in its cage. Just take us through the, the, the doomed flight. What happened and why did it happen? So the doomed flight left Germany on May 3rd, 1937. It was the first flight of the 1937 season. It was, Hindenburg had flown to North America 10 times in 1936. They were trial flights, sort of let's see if we can do this. And, and they were really super successful. So in 1937, the idea was to prove to the world that, yeah, we can make this a real business. So it was really important to them that that first flight go smoothly, go on time, arrive on time, leave on time, prove that they could maintain a reliable scheduled service because they wanted to build a huge fleet of these things. There was another factor, which is that the return flight was packed with reservations of people who wanted to attend the coronation of George VI. 
they were all excited about being able to leave the United States after it was too, and no ocean liner could have gotten there in time, right? By the time Hindenburg was scheduled to leave, uh, it, was the, it, was the, it was the only way to make the car nation, right? And so there were all these wealthy people who thought, well, what's going to be cooler than we go and attend the coronation of George VI and we arrive by air, which is like just really cool in 1937, right? So it was a really big prestigious thing for the Germans to be able to operate this trip on schedule. And that was the, the source of the doom because they were so determined to operate on schedule, right? Because that... That's the reason for the disaster. That drove the disaster. It was time pressure. They were in a rush. So were corners cut? Were safety things ignored? Tell us briefly about those. Exactly. So by the time Hindenburg arrived in the United States um, on May 6, 1937, there were thunderstorms over the landing field. It was just a completely inappropriate time to try to land a hydrogen airship. It violated all these principles that had been developed over decades for how to safely handle a hydrogen airship. And one of the biggest rules of all was you don't land in a thunderstorm. And on top of that, as they were coming in for landing, they also knew they had a problem. They knew that the ship was probably leaking hydrogen. And so they had every reason to take their time, assess the problem, try to fix the problem if they could, right? But instead they ignored all of these problems because they were in this rush to land. And and that's really the reason that the ship caught fire. Am I right in, th- so it was lightning that hit the ship that made it c- catch fire. Am I right in thinking it was the actual, it, it was the, the, the material and the dope on the material rather than the hydrogen that really made it burn? You are obscenely wrong in thinking that. Wow. <laughs> obscenely. And, uh, and, and and if you want, I can phrase that in a way that might be more comfortable for you. No, to no, no, that's obscenely. I like to be obscenely wrong. If I'm going to be wrong. <laughs> so the ship wasn't actually struck by lightning, but it was in an area of electrical discharge. It was in a very electrically conductive atmosphere, right? And so there were huge differentials of electric potential between the ground and the air where Hindenburg was. So basically it was just crackling with static electricity, hydrogen was leaking. And when you have an airship that's crackling with static sparks and leaking hydrogen, you're almost inevitably going to have a fire. Why, when I said, oh, the material, the skin of the Zeppelin was really flammable and that was part of the problem. Why was I obscenely wrong? Because you, when, you see, when you see pictures of it, it's all sort of, you see the skin kind of burning away. Well, yes, but then again, you have a roaring inferno of highly flammable hydrogen. Anything touching it is going to burn along with it, right? You know, the metal melted. Yeah, anything close to a fire like that is going to, is going to burn. So this thing burnt and just, and just, just, just paint the picture of what was going on when it, when it, when it caught fire. So the people on the Zeppelin only had a matter of seconds, and we're talking about maybe 10 to 15 seconds to figure out what was even going on. And in that 10 to 15 to maybe at most 20 seconds, they had to decide what to do. The ship began uh, tilting. People were knocked over. Took them a few moments to even figure out what was happening, that the ship was on fire. And people who were close to a window had a chance to jump out. And and the people who survived were close to windows and were able to jump out. People who were deep in the ship had no chance at all. They just didn't have enough time to get toward any kind of an exit. 
Uh, and people had to make really horrible split-second choices. There was a mother who had two young boys with her, and she had a matter of seconds to decide whether or not to throw them out a window to save their lives. You know, what a horrible choice for a mother to make. You know, is it more dangerous to not throw them out the window or more dangerous to throw them out the window? I suppose, am I right in thinking that the fact that it was being filmed as well, the fact that we saw all those pictures or people would have seen the pictures of it burning and it was so horrific seeing this enormous thing go up in flames, signed the death knell of airships. That was it. The end. Yes, no one would have wanted to travel on a hydrogen-filled passenger airship after this disaster. And at that point, after the disaster, the Germans did finally ask for helium, but the United States refused it. So that was pretty much the end of the passenger airship era. And presumably air, aircraft airliners were, were getting bigger and better and could take more people as well. Correct. There were heavier-than-air airliners that were crossing oceans much more economically, much faster. So it just it didn't really make sense. I mean, Hindenburg was launched in March of 36. In November of 1935, the Pan Am China Clipper flew across the Pacific. You know, it was faster less expensive to operate, just better in every way. It's funny, actually, I was reading, I was listening to the Orson Welles um, War of the Worlds, if you listen to the radio programme, and if you listen to the the radio announcer panicking as the aliens are landing in in the field in wherever it was, New Jersey, I can't remember. Grover's Mill, New Jersey. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, Apparently, it was based on the reports of the Hindenburg. He used the the, the reporter reporting on the Hindenburg disaster as a oh I didn't as, know that that's a, interesting yeah mm. as a yeah as a as a as a as a model for the that that, that sense of panic it's yeah. amazing it was so quick you know it, it's such a small period of history the, the Zeppelin and airships generally they came they were this part of this particular era and then suddenly no more we don't, I mean obviously we see things like blimps we see the the Goodyear blimp and advertising blimps but certainly not carrying passengers they've missed their they've missed their moment I think and they had their moment in history they and 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 they've had their moment in history I think they, they have and, and again the thing to remember is that technological advancement in aviation operates at its staggering speed right If you think about from 1903, when the Wright brothers first flew just a few meters, basically, you know, in 1969, we landed a man on the moon, right? And, you know, 1950, the early 50s, we had an intercontinental jet airliner. So things happen just incredibly fast in aviation. And airships just never stood a chance of keeping up. What is the fascination with them? Why do we why are we so intrigued by them? Well, it's sort of magical that something that size can just float. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the size of a giant ocean liner, and it just floats in the air. There is no one who will not look up to see a blimp flying overhead. Like, no, you'd have to yeah. be a complete loser. You would have to be a total dork. Actually, no, the dorks yeah. would look up. You'd have to be a total jerk. <laughs> you'd have to be an idiot, right? Who doesn't look up? Nobody. Yeah. Yeah, there are certain things you look up. When Concorde flies over, you look yes, up. Yes, exactly. Well, you don't anymore, but you did look up. You just looked up because it was a thing of elegance and a thing of beauty and a wonder just of like, my goodness, look, humans made that. That's a perfect place to pause. Dan, thank you so much for, for taking us through this wonderful story. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
there we go that's it thanks very much for listening don't forget uh, as ever leave us a rating and a review if you've got time if you can be bothered it helps us out it helps others discover the show we'd be very grateful uh, and also we just love hearing from you so get in touch for whatever reason to say hello or to pass on any thoughts or ideas you've got and I will look forward to your company next time small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right because rustoleum's new custom spray five and one gives you control with five different spray patterns so you can tackle nooks crannies edges and curves without worrying about drips runs uneven coverage or anything else custom spray five and one only from rustoleum planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.